The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, again, it's an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, Like Matt mentioned, our our senior pastor, Bill, is enjoying some well-deserved time off and time away with his family. Uh, So my name is Tim Pitzer. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries, uh, and I'm preaching both this morning and also next week. Uh, We're continuing our series in the Psalms. If you've been worshiping with us for a little while, uh, you'll know that we've been continuing this. Uh, So this morning, we're looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. So if you would, turn your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51 this morning, a Psalm of David. So it says this, the Word of God, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy,' Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be clean whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now as we come to your word in the few minutes that we have, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit now to work in our hearts, to to come in and to to minister in the areas that we need repentance, to recognize our sin, and God, also that you would remind us of the redemption that you purchased for us by sending your Son on the cross. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, by way of introduction to this, I want to kind of mention something that's been true of of sort of my spiritual journey. Uh, I grew up in Rhode Island, actually, and I started going to a Baptist church growing up, and it was a wonderful church, but something that was kind of true of the curriculum, of the teaching, of the preaching, is that it had a bent towards what we would call legalism. So a lot of you familiar with that. That's the idea that that sin is constantly preached, but, but there's never a solution, right? It's just don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. You want God to love you, don't sin. They didn't phrase it like that, but a lot of the, the genre kind of went towards that. So my family and I, when I was a teenager, we left that church, 
and we went to a different non-denominational kind of community church, and this church went the complete opposite direction. All we heard about was God's love, but never combined with sin, with the idea that we actually need saving. So all this led to, at one point, I remember as a teenager, I just didn't have a desire to fight sin anymore. Uh, because of this, this tension, these two separate things, I just, I just kind of gave up, and I, I kind of called myself a Christian, but didn't really think about the consequences of the gospel. And the biggest thing that was missing was the gospel. I, I remember when this first uh, when I first realized this, fast forward to summer of 2008, I uh, moved out of my parents' house, started college. I was a little bit older. I was 21, uh, transferred into Clemson as a sophomore. And at that point, I had no idea what different denominations were. Like, didn't have a clue what any Baptist, Presbyterian, just had no understanding. It was literally just like flipping a coin. And I decided to go to a church across the street uh, from my apartment called Clemson Presbyterian Church. And I'll never forget August 2008, I'm sitting, about to listen to the sermon, and, and the pastor, David Sinclair, starts uh, speaking about sin. I thought, oh, not again. <laughs> i got to find a whole different church. My, my roommates are going to this one. It seemed like a great, it's easy, it's across the street. Not again, he's going to talk about sin. And honestly, I heard two things combined, which I had never heard before, sin and grace. Sin and, and forgiveness, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Uh, two things that, that I just simply either had never heard before, or in case like my third grade Sunday school teacher is listening to this sermon, don't remember hearing at churches growing up. Never. It was like, it was like a new idea to my heart. And, and honestly, I don't even remember the actual sermon text that was preached that morning. I just simply heard the gospel. Euangelion in the Greek, the good news that the, that the Bible preaches. So I'm gonna ha- I have a confession. I say that. This will make sense in a second. I have a confession for you this morning. Um, I didn't want to preach this psalm when I saw which psalm I was supposed to preach. I saw Psalm 51, and, and I went to Bill and said, are you kidding me? I'm preaching. They said, and he said, it's an exciting. It's a good opportunity. I said, I know, but do you know what it's about? He said, yeah, I do. You're still going to preach it. So here I am. I'm preaching it. But here's why. For some of you who aren't, aren't kind of familiar with the context, we don't have time to fully uh, unravel and read everything that's happened before this point, but here's kind of the highlights for you. In 2 Samuel 11, it talks about uh, David was home from war, everyone else was at war, and David was in Jerusalem. Uh, he's hanging out on, literally says his couch, on uh, the rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba bathing and finds her attractive and commits adultery with her. Ends up getting her pregnant, And now he's got an issue. He's got a problem. So in order to cover this up, he calls her husband Uriah home from war. And this is in order to cover up the pregnancy, trying to make it look like, well, the baby is is her husband's, not mine. So he comes home, but Uriah, who's an honorable man, says, I'm not going to just go home and pretend like the war's not going on. All my friends are still having a battle. I'm not going to go in. I don't get, my friends don't get to be with their wives. Why should I be able to go inside to the house and pretend like the war's not going on. So he actually stays on his doorstep the entire time, never goes into his house. And so David loses the ability to have a cover-up for this baby. So then, plan B, David sends Uriah back to war. 
David contacts uh, the commander, Joab, and says, send Uriah to the front lines, the front lines of battle, which was bad enough, right? Like, you're going to get killed if you're on the front lines of battle. But he not only says that, he says, send him to the front lines, and then I want all of you to withdraw so that he's by himself. So David completely commits murder. And, and this prayer, this psalm, thank God, is David's repentance from this. And as I started thinking about what is it that made me not want to preach this sermon, I started kind of noticing just kind of a false way that I probably have of thinking that sneaks in there. It's that, is David's sin too big for the cross? And for us, do we think that? So often we think of the cross and the cross is preached and the gospel is preached. Here's what we think. We think the cross is big enough for everyone else but ourselves. Or we do this. We kind of say, okay, Christ died on the cross for my sins, and we think about our sins, we think about the smaller ones, and say, yeah, I can believe that. Like, that lie, that little fib, that little kind of little anger that I had, sure, okay, it's forgiven on the cross, but what about the Bathsheba-sized sins that we've committed? Is the cross big enough for that? This is the gospel. This is the component that either, I I tell my students this, I, I either became a Christian for the first time when I heard sin and grace preached together, or it just radically changed my whole outlook on the Christian faith and, and changed me and allowed me to live differently after that. But that's what, that's what was missing. And so in, in our text this morning, what we simply have, and a reminder for why I said, okay, Tim, you can do this, is that this is the gospel. Yes, you have a terrible, terrible sin committed by someone that is referred to as a man after God's own heart. That's in here. You can't, you have to deal with that. But at the same time, as we start to look at the language, we're going to recognize that David gets the gospel. And specifically, and the the reason I titled this sermon is that this is the rhythm of the Christian life, that we see our sin, repent, and then so often we forget the last part, have our joy restored. Have the joy of our salvation restored. So these are my three points simply taken from the text. Sin, repentance, and then joy restored of salvation. So first, two quick things uh, about sin. We'll look at uh, what defines sin, and then where does it come from. So to kind of start off, if you'll bear with me for a second to kind of flesh this out, I thought of this. It's really interesting what our culture thinks about in terms of evil and and sort of wrongdoing. Something I found just kind of fascinating after talking with non-Christians about what's wrong in the world is that most, if not all non-Christians, will recognize that people do wrong things, or, or that evil exists in the world. In fact, if I were to pull the news up and kind of go down the list and, and identify different things, I, I bet about 90% of it, uh, myself and another person who is a non-Christian, would say, yeah, that was wrong. That murder, that lying, all those other things, that's wrong. Not everything, but in general, people admit, like, there's something wrong. People are capable of doing evil. But here's the bigger question for us that we have to address through this psalm. What is it that makes it evil? What is it that actually makes a human heart sinful? How do we actually recognize and identify what's wrong? So for the non-Christian, they are forced to say that it's something that is, that is prone to change, right? The biggest one is probably culture. So a non-Christian's answer to why is it wrong that David had an affair, that got someone pregnant who he was supposed to be protecting as her king, had her husband come home to try to cover it up, had a murder instead. Why is that wrong? A non-Christian, for this reason, would have to say, well, the culture defines it as wrong. 
And you can see how silly that is because by that definition, what it means is that if I go somewhere in the earth and I find a culture that says adultery and murder are okay, then suddenly I lose the argument to be able to say that this was wrong and this was sin. But for the Christian, for the Christian, for David, what we see in the very beginning is that it's a transgression. It's an iniquity. David knows that, that the thing that made it wrong is not culture, it's not because this was unacceptable, but it was a missing of a mark. It was a missing of God's law, which is what that word transgression and iniquity means. David knows that he was supposed to uh, uh, hold up a certain way of living, of, of maintaining a standard, and he failed miserably at that. David knows even in all the midst of his mess and his sin, that what makes something wrong is not culture, it's not our opinion of right or wrong, it's God's law. And it's the same 2,000 years ago today, and it will be the same 1,000 years from now. Right and wrong doesn't change, because it's based on God's law that never changes. So that's the first thing. Our second thing is we have to look at, well, where does it come from? And for David, if you look at verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here's what David's saying, what David is saying here. God, I realize that circumstances didn't cause me to sin. He's saying it's not just that the environment presented the, the perfect scenario, and that's, that's the blame. David is saying, me. <laughs> the problem is me. It's inherent with who I am. I was born into sin. I'll never forget when this point, like, really hit home, for me, about a year ago, uh, I'm feeding my daughter, Ruthie, feeding her lunch. I think it was about a year ago. And it was like one of the first times that we were trying to work on her using a spoon, um, which is kind of funny because she still can barely do it. She was one years old at the time. But um, I remember her, her doing it. She got like mad or something, and she pushed the spoon off the tray. And I thought, oh, well, if she knew that it was the desire of her father to not have that happen, she wouldn't have done it. So I said, Ruthie, do not push the spoon off of your tray. Keep it there. And I remember when I said that to her, I remember thinking, like, this is silly. She doesn't understand what I'm asking her not to do. And as soon as I finished talking, like, she locked in eye contact with me, grabbed the spoon, and just threw it off the tray. Like, maintaining eye contact with me the whole time. And, and I'm holding back laughter. I'm like, I'm realizing that raising a two-year-old is just constantly trying to not laugh at the wrong things they do. Um, I know that changes when you have teenagers, but for now, I'm laughing. But here's the thing. I didn't have to teach her how to do that. That wasn't, I promise that wasn't a trick that I was like, Steph will think this is hilarious. I'm going to teach Ruthie how to throw her spoon in defiance. And that's what David is saying. He's saying, it, in, in conception, I was born sinful. And I really think this is the beginning of David completely coming undone, of admitting that that he's helpless before a holy God, that he's sinful. I could so see David resonating with, with uh, the writer Paul, if he had been around to hear him. When Romans 7, Paul wrote, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You can just picture David getting on his knees and saying, God, I give in. Like, I've tried to follow your commandments. I've tried to live a holy life. I've tried to fully believe this, but it just, time and time again, I, I, just, I just fail. And you can picture this point in the psalm, the climax of just saying, okay, okay, I give in. You see, something very fascinating that I did not know about this psalm uh, is the time period that has gone by 
in between the actual act of adultery and the writing of this psalm. It had been an entire year that had gone by between the actual sin and the writing of this psalm. An entire year. Can you imagine wrestling with that for a whole year? And so this next point, I said this in first service. I said I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to still say it again. I don't have biblical evidence for this next point. But usually, like, that's a really bad thing when a pastor says that. But I'm just speculating right now on something. So kind of go with me here for a second. I, I think in this, when we look at this year in between uh, committing adultery and actually writing this psalm, I don't think David experienced guilt over his sin, right? It, it took actually Nathan coming and, and exposing and bringing up to bring David to conviction. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if David felt shame. I wonder if he felt shame. Because here's the difference. When you have guilt over your sin, what it does is it allows the Holy Spirit to come in and minister to your heart and say, I've done something wrong. And then the Holy Spirit points you to the cross and says your wrongdoing is forgiven. Here's what shame does. Shame is like listening to the lie of the enemy that says you not only did something wrong, but you are wrong. That you have to stay in your sin. What it does is it actually takes the atonement of Christ, Christ on the cross, and says you can't come to him yet because that, wasn't, that cross wasn't big enough. So someone living in shame is going to take time, maybe even an entire year, because they're thinking, how is it that I can approach a holy God? On what grounds can I stand? I recognize something that I did wrong, but I don't know how to approach him. And so I don't, I don't, it doesn't say that in the text, but I do wonder, the longer I'm in ministry, the longer I'm a pastor, I see this difference of guilt and shame, and I see the difference of what causes someone to repent, because I know it in my own life. When I feel shame, I don't want to approach God. When I feel guilt, guilt is still hard. Discovering your sin, owning your sin is still hard. But what guilt says is the sin is wrong, not you are wrong. What Satan wants you to believe in the midst of your shame is that you are no different than that non-Christian before, when, that you were born into, that you were capable of nothing better than, than when we're first born and we just don't know how to please God. That's what shame does. And so for this morning, the question I don't know what lies Satan is telling you about who God is. David starts off this psalm, if you caught it, he starts off appealing to God's mercy and God's love. And I don't know, maybe God's telling you, or maybe uh, Satan is telling you that God's not merciful. Maybe Satan's telling you that God's not loving so that you can't come to him with your sin. Maybe it's that, it's that God's plan of you pursuing a holy life, of not sinning, is, is not as good uh, as your plan, as continuing in the sin that you continue in. Maybe it's that you want to battle the sin, you kind of feel that guilt or that shame, but when you think about how is it that you're going to be able to stand, how is it that you're going to be able to conquer this sin, you don't think the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to change you, so you just don't even go there. Here's the scary part about all three cases, what I just said. Each and every scenario has to do with a different lie about the Trinity. We look at God the Father and say, your plan isn't best. We look at Holy Spirit and say, your power isn't powerful enough. And then we look at Christ on the cross and we say, the cross wasn't big enough for my sin. Friends, we are left with no excuse for continuing in our sin. It just doesn't make sense. And what David shows us here 
is that when you, when you recognize your sin, when you see your sin and define it for what it is, what it leads to, which is our next point, is repentance. Look at verse 6. It says, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. I, I truly think this is the turning point uh, for David. So I, I think at one point earlier, he kind of felt the weight of his sin, and now he's, he's faced with a choice, and it's uh, the, the second rhythm of the Christian life as repentance. So repentance was actually a military term, and we often don't really understand what this word means. Here's what we think repentance means. We think that if I say repent of that sin, then when, we, when you encounter your sin, it just means that you stop doing it, right? What repentance means is actually stopping, turning around, and then pursuing something else. It's a military term. So what that means, because think about it, David stopped his sin. After, it was a one-time thing, and then a year went by. So if, if we were to give David the wrong definition of repentance, he would have said, I've done it. I stopped. But it means stopping, turning around, and pursuing something else. And so I want to cover two quick things about uh, this point of repentance. First is a personal aspect to it. David says, in the inward being, you want truth, and in the secret heart, my secret heart, you teach me wisdom. David's recognizing that even though he's repented, he still needs help. He still needs to hear truth in order to be able to turn around and pursue something else. And so as we think about the so what, how do we do this? I think one of the reasons that we often don't personally repent or why this is so hard is that it is much easier to point out sin in someone else's life than our own. Here's what often I think, I I think this is how uh, we think it's like when we think about calling out someone else's sin. If you ever play the game where two people are next to each other, one's blindfolded, and you're, you can see, and you're, you have to, like, tell the person, go straight, go left, go right. We think that, like, we can see clear as day, and that other person is just blind when we think about calling out their sin. But here's something for us this morning. I think we're often underestimating the idea of, of corporate aspects of actual repentance, because here's the reality of the Christian life. It has to be done together. And so too often, this is what I did in the first part of my Christian life. I used to think, oh, I don't want to judge someone, so I'm not going to bring up their sin. I'm not going to call them out. See, here's what we take, and I've even heard this done before. We take Matthew 7, which if you're familiar with it, it says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye, in your own eye? So we read that, we think, oh, okay, it says not to take the speck out of my brother's eye when I have a bigger log, a bigger sin in my own eye. So we think that means that I'm just not called to call other people to repentance. But we forget that there's a second half to this verse. It says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Matthew 7 actually does is it removes from us the excuse to speak into other people's lives just because we're a sinner. In fact, David uh, illustrates this better than I've ever seen. Look in, look in the passage. There's something just so bold that I can't believe it that he says. So he's barely through this prayer of repentance right? He's just committed like the biggest sin of his life. And look what he says in verse 13. Then it will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That's bold. I mean, he just finished, he he just repented of of the greatest failure that he's ever experienced, 
And he's not even through saying it before he says, God, work in me, restore my joy so that I can help others. David didn't think that because he's a sinner, it takes away his ability to lead others to repentance. Here's the harder part. We not only have to do that, but we actually have to ask other people to speak into our lives, right? Because someone, a lot of times, people won't always go to you and bring up the ways that you need to repent or call out the sin in your life. It's a bold thing to do. I've thought of this, I'll never forget, about two weeks ago, many of you guys know we went to RWAM, Colorado, which is a summer camp in the Rockies. It was an amazing time with the high schoolers. Many of you helped fundraise and bring us to that trip, so uh, we thank you. It was an incredible time seeing God's creation. Something that went just so well that, to be quite honest, usually doesn't go well on a youth trip are small groups. Uh, small groups usually, sorry, are uh, where kids are exhausted. Uh, there's a talk every night, and, and usually, like, it's kind of like trying to pull teeth, trying to get kids to talk. But our small groups, I mean, we went over the time every single time. And I'll never forget, one of our high school girls, she's starting to talk about just certain sin that she's repenting of, just different ways that she's missed the mark. And she said this to our entire group, to 23 other high school students. If any of you see me falling back into this sin, please call me out. I am tired of living half for Christ and half for the world. I have a confession. So often I just feel like I'm paid to get ministered to by high school students. Because she gets it. I mean, this girl's been a Christian for less than two years. And she knows she's not perfect, but she understands that by herself, personal repentance, that personal aspect is not enough to battle sin. She recognizes that, that we need the body of Christ to come around and to say, will you look at my life and will you bring things up if you see ways that I'm not honoring God? I thought as towards the end of this trip on Sunday morning, uh, I had the honor of baptizing Clara. I had been up for 30 hours at that point, so I do not remember baptizing Clara, but I was told it happened. So my wife and I and family were up here, and one of the vows that we took that Bill read, read that said this, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And when all of you said yes, do you know how much that warmed the heart of me and my family? Because here's the reality. I'm not just here because I'm one of your pastors. More so than that, I'm here because I'm another Christian who has a family who is living in a sinful world and needs the body of Christ to come around me and my family, to watch my kids, to see what maybe I'm not seeing, and to gently, but to call out sin. We need that as the Christian life. This is the most under, underrated, underused resource and tool that we have in the Christian life. The idea, because we're scared, what if I sound judgmental? If you see your sin and that's what's preventing you from bringing something up in someone else's life, it's a good thing that you see your sin. In fact, Matthew 7 says that's the model. First, see your sin, that you have a log in your eye, remove it, faithfully go to God in repentance, and then address it. Can you imagine if Nathan didn't have the guts to go to David and call him out on his sin, to bring it up? Can you imagine the blessing that the Christian church would have lost as, for this psalm? And it's not like David, this is sometimes an accusation, it's not like David was only upset about being caught, right? That, that can sometimes happen, but you can't read this psalm and say, oh, he's not really repentant, he's not really sorry, he's just is sorry he got caught. No, 
Read any of the lines in this psalm, and this is a 100% repentance and heart change. And as the church, we are so thankful for it. And so we need to be willing to speak into other lives. The rhythm of the Christian life is not only to see your sin, but to repent and both personally repent and be willing to involve others in that. And then the last thing that's true of the Christian life, and this is by far my favorite, we have our joy restored. If you caught, there's a tension in this psalm all throughout. It, it, really, almost every other line, there's this idea of, of cleansing, of washing. David says, um, as we read, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was an herb that was used uh, in, for leprosy to kind of help cleanse and for the, the final process of cleansing. So David has this idea that he is dirty, that his sin made him dirty, and there's a washing, a cleansing that has to take place. And then verse 16, I think, reflects a theological understanding that David has that's like a thousand years beyond his time. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This is fascinating. David has an understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system that almost just makes no sense. That, that make no, makes no sense to the people in that time period, but for us, for Christians on this side of the cross, we should be reading these pages when David says, uh, you won't delight in a sacrifice. There's just not another sacrifice. We should say, jumping out of the pages, David, there's one that's coming that's going to make sense of this. David knows that animal sacrifices were never meant to atone for sin, but one is coming that is going to fully atone for sin. And so how does he resolve this? He says in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a broken spirit. O oh God, you will not despise. David knows that when one is truly broken over his sin, it's then that the mercy and the love of God that he experienced in the beginning of this psalm starts to come through and it changes you. But it only comes if you first go through the process of humbling yourself to see your sin. Folks, here's the reality of this, of this topic, of, of the title, of this message, of this psalm. It's that we need to hear over and over and over again that we cannot earn our salvation. That, that the good works that you do, it is good to do good works, but if you think that they're going to put you in a right standing before God, you're fooling yourself. Think about how holy God is and think about how sinful you are. And the longer I'm a pastor and, and even just a Christian, I'm so convinced of this, that, that we need to be reading it. We need to hear it preached. It's the reason why we pick songs that have it all throughout the gospel that you cannot earn your salvation. Listen, if a student goes through my ministry for seven years, and if they're a part of every Bible study, if they lead all the Bible studies at school, if they do all the trips and the camps and they help out and they volunteer and they attend everything, and if I ask them this question at the end of their time with me, how is it that you're saved, and they give anything other than the blood of Christ, I have failed. I have failed my job. This is the one truth. That is, there's more truth, but this is essential to the gospel, to the Christian life. It's the rhythm of the gospel, and here's why I think we miss it so often. Because everything else in your life is conditional. Everything else is sort of a cause and effect scenario. If you have a better job performance, you're going to get the promotion. If you get good grades, you're going to be able to go to that better college. If you do well in college, then you'll get that better job. 
If you do well in sports, you'll get to make that sports team. All these things, we are so used to constantly having a cause and effect. We have to do it, and then it will be done. And the gospel comes in, and it's the one thing that says, he is the cause, and we experience the effect. And that is so contrary to everything else that we know in this life. And it's the reason that we sound like broken records probably as Christians of reminding each other, you're not saved by your works, you're saved by grace. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace. David needed a reminding of this truth. You're not saved by your works, David. You're saved by grace. Yes, this is a terrible sin. Yes, it's going to change your life from here on out. But it's not related to your justification. You are still in right standing because your God is merciful and because your God is loving. When closing, I mentioned that I was at Clemson Prez in the beginning of college um, throughout that, my time in college, I became a uh, youth intern at Clemson and then became the youth director. In my last year of college, I think it was my second year, I was, I was speaking with a girl who just really struggled with, with following the wrong crowd, with battling sin, just, just on and off, just different things would happen. And I'm, standing, I'm sitting talking with her at cookout one night because all deep theological conversations happen at cookout. And we're talking, and, and her parents at this time were going through a divorce. And it's just a nasty divorce. And her dad some, said something to her. Her dad was not, not a good man. He said that because of the sin that you've wrestled with, and then because of the marriage that you've witnessed, you're never going to be a good wife or a good mother. He said that to her. Senior in high school. And I'll never forget what happened next. I, I said, do you believe and understand that you are not just a product of your parents? that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and he will see you through to the end. And she just broke down completely of sorrow, but also tears of joy, and said, I've never been told that. I've never believed it. My friends, do you believe that God can use your sin for his glory? Or do you believe that you're just a product of anything that's happened to you in the past? Something one of the leading question that I get as a pastor, both from students and adults, doesn't matter the age, is how is it that I can grow closer to God, right? That's always the question. How do I get closer to God? My prayer life doesn't feel real. When I, I, it's hard to read the scriptures. I just, I don't feel close to him. You ready for the answer? It's the gospel. See your sin, repent, and experience the joy of your salvation like it's happened for the first time. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know these truths are true, but God, so often our heart, so often our our attitude and in real life, we we act as if they're not. God, and we we know that it's the rhythm of the Christian life to, to see our sin and to see the salvation purchased for us by your Son. But God, we just have such an effort, such a, a desire to want to contribute to that. So God, my prayer for us as a church, both Hilton Head and around the world, is that we would understand what it is that you did for us. That not only, not only do we not contribute to our salvation, but that we can't contribute to our salvation. And so God, we thank you that, that you did the impossible. You didn't have to send your son to live a perfect life, to substitute in our place, God, but you did. And so, God, my prayer for us is that the gospel would be true, would be made alive to us afresh each and every day, every Sunday as we hear it preached, that we would encourage each other in the midst of suffering and everything that goes on 
God, that the gospel is true and that it is good news for sinners. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.